when we come to Christmas, we, we tend to look at the same familiar stories, and, and it's good that we should remind ourselves about them. When we read the Bible, we, we are familiar with certain stories, some more than others. But every now and again, it's good for us to stand back and to look at the big picture. Um, and that's what I want to do this morning. Um, you might not remember everything I say, you probably won't, but there are some notes at the back, so please help yourself to them. If they run out, then I can uh, send them some, some to you. But one, what I want to do this morning is just to look at um, the big picture. Um, now, confession. But when, in, back in the 1980s, mid-1980s, um, one of my guilty pleasures was on Saturday afternoons about five o'clock watching a program with my daughters, The A-Team. Yeah, you remember it. You remember The A-Team. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember The A-Team. How about that? I didn't, I didn't think that was possible. But if you remember The A-Team, you know that uh, about two-thirds of the way through the program every week, through each episode, um, the leader of The A-Team, Hannibal Smith, would say something like, well, he wouldn't say something like this. He would say, I love it when a plan comes together. Remember that? I love it when a plan comes together. And that's one of, apparently one of the hundred greatest TV quotes and, fa- uh, and uh, catch phrases. Don't say that I don't ever teach you something when I, uh, when I come and speak here. Um, a plan comes together. And what we see in these songs um, that were just read to us, those songs from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, is God's plan coming together. They're the parts of the Christmas story that we don't really think very much about. Um, But they're very, very important because they show how as Jesus is born with the coming of Jesus, God's plan for the salvation of the world comes together. God has had a plan, well, even before the world began. But the first hint of the plan is found in Genesis chapter 3.15, where um, the serpent has deceived Adam and Eve, and what happens is that um, God puts a curse on the serpent. And he says this, I will put enmity, I'll put hostility between you and the woman, uh, the woman being Eve. um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed, uh, modern versions say her offspring, and that's nothing wrong with that. But seed is a really important word in in Hebrew. Because in uh, in Hebrew, women don't have seed. There's only one woman who is promised a seed. It's always the men who have seed. Abraham has seed, Isaac has seed, Jacob has seed. It's men who have seed. And what may make that a little bit clearer to you is that when the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek, the Greek word for seed was sperma. That's something that only men have. And I think there's a hint there of how several thousand years down the line, a woman, a a virgin, is going to give birth to a child and will call his name Emmanuel, God God with us. 
And, but after that promise that things are going to get better, God is going to undo what the serpent has done. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is going to be a fight. And in that fight, the serpent is going to have his head crushed. But in the course of that fight, he will crush the, or he will bruise uh, the heel of the seed of the woman who is going to come. Um, but after that promise is made, the world doesn't get better. It, it actually gets worse until finally, we, well, we, we find uh, in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain kills his brother Abel. And things get worse and worse until in, in Genesis chapter 6, um, every inclination of the thought of Ben's heart was only evil continually. Only evil all the time. That was the state of the world. It had gone from bad to worse. And so God decided he was going to send a flood. The flood. Um, he was going to undo his creation. You remember how the, uh, the, the dry land had come out of the waters. God was going to send the dry land back into the waters. He was going to bring it uh, back again, and he was going to start the world over again with eight people, Noah being the the father. And what's interesting, uh, it's as though man is being given a second chance. Um, the world has gone from bad to worse. Surely now, it's going to become better. God has wiped away all humanity except eight people. The tragedy is, although Man has come out of the evil world. The evil world hasn't come out of him. And so what we find is, after the flood, that there's a lot of similarities um, and differences, but significant differences between the world that came originally and, and the new world. For example, you've got two heads of new man humanity. You've got Adam... And you've got um, Noah. And each of them have, uh, well, Adam has sons and daughters, we're told, in Genesis chapter 4. But we, we're, only three sons are named, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And Cain is evil, Abel and Seth are righteous. And what we find also is that when Noah comes out of the ark, he has three sons. One is evil, Ham, Shem, and Japheth are, are, are good. What happens when God brings um, Adam, uh, brings Noah out of the ark is that uh, he blesses him. Well, he blessed Adam and, and, and blesses Noah with the same blessing. Be fruitful and, and fill the earth. And blesses him with, with blesses them both with food as well. So similarities there. And um, Adam, is, we find Adam in a garden, and we find Noah in a sort of garden in a vineyard. In the Garden of Eden, there's a tree, and in Noah's vineyard, there's a tree. Adam eats of a tree. Noah drinks of a tree because he he gets himself drunk with, with wine. And Adam was naked in the garden, 
wasn't aware that nakedness was anything different, but once he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he wants knowledge, but the knowledge that he gets is that he's naked. And Noah becomes drunk, and he becomes aware that he's naked after he's woken up uh, from uh, from his stupor. And uh, God clothes Adam's nakedness. Shem and Japheth uh, clothe the nakedness of their father. So, although it's a new beginning, it always ends up the same. And there comes a curse. With Adam, there was a curse on the ground. With Ham, there's a curse on his entire line. So, although it's a new world... It's the same old, same old. Man falls into sin. The curse of sin that came in the Garden of Eden remains on the human race. But God has promised that he's going to undo that. God has promised that he is going to send the seed of a woman who is, who is going to crush the, the head of the serpent, but it's not happening yet. And so what happens is we see again the world getting worse and worse Uh, uh, Noah pronounces a curse in Genesis 9. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brother. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. I think just all all of us here are from the line of Japheth. Um. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. What we see because of the coming of the Lord Jesus, who is from the line of Shem, you and I today are dwelling in the tents of Shem because somebody from the line of Shem has come and has redeemed us and has undone the curse that is on us. I need to just get some of this. So we see that although the clan hasn't come together, we see that there's a formation taking uh, taking place because in Genesis chapter uh, 1 verse 15, what we're told there is that one day some woman will give birth to a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. But it's very vague. That's all we know. But what we see with, uh, with the sons of Noah is that Shem is going to be the one through whom that seed is going to come. But it's still quite vague because there are three, three lines there. It's going to be in one of them. And then what, uh, we find that things get worse and worse and worse until the whole of humanity gathers together at the Tower of Babel to rebel against God. So it's just getting worse and worse and worse again until one day. We find this in Genesis chapter 12, that God calls a man of the line of Shem called Abram. He will later become Abraham. And this is what he says to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. It's, been, it's all been cursing up to now, but I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
brothers and sisters, this morning, in this place, that promise has come to pass. Because you and I, through, a, through the offspring of Abraham, Abraham, have come to, to salvation. And salvation has come to every nation in, in the world, every nation in the world, but it's not coming just then. God says, I will bless you. You will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But what we find throughout as we read the Old Testament is this. That blessing comes upon Israel. Israel is the recipient of God's blessing. So we find in Numbers chapter 6 verses 24 to 26. That God instructs the high priest. He instructs Aaron and his descendants to put this blessing upon the people of Israel. And this is, what they are to, this is what the high priest is to say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you or be merciful to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the promise that is to be put upon the people of Israel. And in Psalm 67, we find the psalmist praying this. And it's a prayer for the people of Israel. May God be merciful to us, the Jewish people, and bless us, the Jewish people, and make his face shine upon us, the Jewish people, in order that your way may, way be, may, your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. He's praying that that blessing that the high priests put upon the people may become a reality. Was it not a reality? Yes, it was. But the writer of the psalm realizes that it's not the reality that it ought to be. Because you remember what God says to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. I will bless you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as the psalmist looks around the nations, God is blessing Israel. God is, to some degree, making that blessing of Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. God is being faithful to it, but not to the degree where the nations are saved. As the psalmist looks around the, the nations surrounding Jerusalem, what he finds is that the Moabites, for example are worshipping their god, Molech, by burning their children in fire. What he is finding in the, the Amalekites and others is that they are, they are worshipping their gods through depraved orgies. And as he looks at them, he remembers that God has said that he will bless the nations, he will bring salvation to the nations. And sure, he's blessing Israel. He's making his face shine upon Israel. He is being gracious to Israel. He's being merciful to Israel. He's bringing peace to Israel. But not to the degree where, the, where that, that it's affecting the nations. But the promise is that through Abraham, that will come. And why is that? Because according to 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. 
It was, it's only with the coming of Jesus that Israel can know those blessings of the Aaronic benediction to the degree that God intended them to. And when that happens, it will affect the nations. It will have a knock-on effect with the nations. As it goes with Abraham, so it will go with the nations. As it goes with Israel, so it will go with the nations. The nations cannot be saved until Israel is saved. And so what happens when we come to... to um, Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, we have these songs with the birth of Jesus that indicate, show us, they showed the people then that the promises that God had made to bless the nations, the promises that God had made to bless Israel were coming to pass. And it's interesting in Psalm 67, when you read in Psalm 67, God be merciful to us and bless us. Make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace. That the nations, that your way may be known on earth, that the nations might know your salvation. And the interesting thing is that the word there for salvation is Yeshua. Yeshua is the Jewish name for Jesus. That the nations might know your Yeshua. And all of that becomes even more evident when we look at, when we look at the, those songs. So, that, for example, um, what we see in, in these songs is blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. God be merciful to us and bless us. And what we see immediately in, in Mary's song, she sings, uh, Elizabeth says to her in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 to 45, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. And why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord said to her would be accomplished. So it starts with Mary being blessed. And her son is blessed and it will bring blessing to the, to the nations. And Mary sings in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 to 48. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. Because she will bring blessing. God never blesses us or anyone so that the blessing might remain our own. It's always so that God blesses, so that we might be a blessing. Mary is blessed so that she will be a blessing. And she will be a blessing because she will give birth to the one who will bring blessing to the nations. Um, but there's mercy also. All those categories that we find in the Aaronic benediction of number six, all those uh, categories that we find in, num in uh, Psalm 67, they all come together in these, uh, in these songs. So in Luke chapter 1, verses 49 uh, and, and uh, 48, 49, Mary sings, The mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, or his grace extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham. What God had promised him, wasn't it? And his descendants forever, forever even as he said to our fathers. 
the plan is coming together. The plan that he, that he explained to Abraham is coming, to, is coming together. The plan that is there uh, in Numbers chapter, 60, uh, Numbers chapter 6 and Psalm 67, the plan is coming together in the birth of this child that is going. Uh, in Zechariah's song, in Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 73, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets long ago, to show mercy, to show grace um, to our fathers and to remember his holy uh, covenant, the oath he swore through our father Abraham and you, my child, speaking to John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give, him, to give his people uh, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. See, salvation, when you read the Old Testament, salvation is always in terms of, of Israel being served from, from their earthly enemies. But now... Here is salvation coming in terms of what we read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The undoing of the work of our greatest enemy, of Israel's greatest enemy, of our greatest enemy, the devil himself. It's coming to pass in the birth of Jesus. Um, There's light. Um, God be merciful to you and bless you, make his face shine upon you. Lift, may lift up the light of his countenance on you. Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 79. Here's Zechariah praying again. Uh, you, say, speaking to his son, John the Baptist, will go uh, before the Lord to prepare uh, to, before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun, here's light, you see. The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine upon those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. And then in, in chapter 2 of Luke, Simeon comes into the temple and he's been told that he won't die until he sees the Messiah. And he comes into the temple and he says, Mine eyes have seen your salvation. Now remember that Simeon isn't speaking in English. He's not even speaking in Greek. He's speaking in Hebrew. And what he's saying is this, My eyes have seen your Yeshua. So he takes that little, little child and says, My eyes have seen your Yeshua. Here he is. Yeshua by name. Yeshua by nature. Jesus is called salvation because he is salvation. Call his name Yeshua for he will save his people. He will, Yeshu is his people. Uh, My eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Up until now it's been Israel you see. Because Israel must be blessed first. Abraham must be blessed and then the nations are blessed. 
that Simeon sees even beyond the blessing of salvation and lights for the Jewish people. It's for the Gentiles also. Thank God this morning that we, we Gentiles who were once uh, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, without God, without hope in the world, had now been brought near because of that child, because of that child who was born 2,000 years ago. But there's peace. The angels come glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men with whom his favor rests. Shalom on those with whom his favor rests. And who does his favor rest? Rests on Israel and it rests on the Gentiles now with the coming of that child. Um, And then Simeon says, uh, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you now dismiss your servants with shalom. You dismiss your Uh, your servant in peace. Because when we think of peace, we think uh, in terms of, uh, you know, no hostility, no warfare. And and, and there is certainly that to it. But shalom means much, much more than that. It's a sense, it's well-being. Everything is right. Everything uh, is hanging together because of that. And then salvation. Remember the Psalm 67, God be merciful to us, the Jewish people. Bless us, the Jewish people. Make your face shine on us, the Jewish people, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. And so um, Mary sings in Luke chapter 146, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my Saviour. Uh, Zachariah in his song, verses 69 to 72, he has raised up a horn of salvation. Horn is a symbol of strength. I don't know whether you you ever think of the work of Jesus on the cross being uh, an act of of strength and power. It's interesting when you read in in Isaiah chapter um, 52, the end of 52, on to the beginning of um, 53 um, behold my servant it shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ was God's servant the work that he did on the cross was a work of obedience to his father behold my servant shall deal wisely we don't often think of the work of Jesus on the cross being an act of wisdom obedience and wisdom but it was and then we come to chapter 53 verse 1 um, where we're we're told that um, we're told the uh, who has believed our report to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed whenever God does something powerful and mighty to the for the people of Israel in the Old Testament he stretches forth his arm and there's times when he makes his arm bare. When there are some things that are hard for God to do. And he has to roll his sleeves up. He makes his arm bare. And the cross, at the cross, God made his arm bare. He, he stretched forth his arm on the cross, quite literally. 
in the death of Jesus. And what we find um, is that in, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks, he kind of ransacks the Greek language to find superlatives with which to speak about what Jesus has done in his work on the cross. He spoke, speaks about the exceeding greatness of God's power which he wrought in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. God sent a little child into the world to save us, but he couldn't save us as a little child. It was as a man and it was the greatest demonstration the world has ever seen of the power of God was in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. God raised a horn of salvation. You know, you've seen these wildlife programs, haven't you, where stags are, you know, locking horns with each other. And they go at each other, and you hear this big bang as they, as they lock horns. The horn is, is their strength. And the strength of God is Jesus. The horn of salvation. He has raised up a horn of salvation for his in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Interesting that Zechariah speaks about him receiving the forgiveness of sins. Because remember when Luke's gospel begins and Luke speaks of Zechariah and Elizabeth, he tells us that they were righteous in the sight of God. Um, and that they were blameless in their observance of God's law. But not righteous enough. Not blameless enough. Even these people who, according to the law, were blameless. Nobody could point the finger at them. They needed not just, a, a, not just salvation, but they needed a savior who was strong and powerful, powerful enough to bear their sins in the cross and to rise from the dead on, on the third day. Um... In the angel song, an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born. A horn of salvation has has come into the world. He is Christ, the Lord, Messiah, the Lord. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was called Yeshua, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Savior by name. Savior by nature. That's who Jesus is. That's what his name means, uh, uh, and that's what he is. And Simeon 
took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. Promised it through Abraham. Promised it through the prophets of Israel. You now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. For my eyes have seen your Yeshua. And when you and I, if we are trusting in Jesus, if, if we have seen the Lord's salvation, we can die in peace. We can die in peace because our eyes have seen the Lord's Yeshua. Our eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. We have known the Lord because of, you know, that, that old song wasn't the Mary's boy child. Man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. No, not all mankind, because it's not something where Jesus dies and that's it, the whole world is saved. Everyone who has put their trust in Jesus, everyone who has looked to him, as Simeon did, put their trust in him. Even Mary, the mother of the Lord, says, my eyes have, uh, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. I hope this morning we're all rejoicing in God, our Savior. And that as we see this big picture, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, I, 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 um, every now and again I, I see clips from the 80, you know. But the plan that came together for Hannibal and his chums was nothing compared to the plan that we are celebrating that came together 2,000 years ago and has continued for 2,000 years to become a reality to people in all nations, not only the Jewish people, but Gentiles also. And therefore, as we, uh, yes, we'll, we'll look at the stories over the next few weeks. We'll look at the stories. It's good that we do that. But isn't it good just every now and again to look at the big picture? You know, when I go into art galleries, um, and there are not many of them around here, but what I like to do when I look at pictures, I like to go up close and just have a look at the paintwork, you know. And, uh, but you can do that, and you don't see the big pictures when you stand back from that, and you see the big picture. It's good to look at if you're interested in it, it's good to look at the good to look at the brushwork. But it's when you stand back that you really appreciate it. And I hope what I've been able to do this morning, brothers and sisters, is to just help you to stand back. You'll you'll admire the paintwork over the next few weeks or so as you read the as you read the stories as Laurie preaches to us or others speak to us. But it's just really good to get the big picture, isn't it? So when you see the big picture, you know, nobody goes, when you look at the paintwork, goes, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it fantastic? Just look at the way he's used those brush strokes. If you're an artist yourself, you can appreciate that. But everybody, when they stand back, you see it and you go, oh. And it's always good for us to look back because it's as we look back that 
we see Jesus more clearly. And as we see him more clearly, we love him, hopefully. We love him more dearly so that we might follow him more nearly day by day.